Welcome to Learn Me Right in Healthful and Bioethics, aka the, the H Lab. <laughs> I'm Sinead. And I'm Ruthie. And this podcast is aimed for literally anybody interested in topical health law issues, where we talk to experts who present evidence based research. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal or medical advice. Any research or resources that are referred to within the podcast will be uploaded to our show notes after each episode. These podcasts are supported by the Australian Centre for Health or Research, where both Ruthie and myself are PhD students. And with that in mind, <laughs> so welcome to the second podcast. We recognise the Turbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respect to elders, laws, customs, and creation spirits. We recognize that these lands have always been places of teaching, research, and learning. Today we have Sam Moyle, a lecturer here at QUT. Um, can you just give us a quick introduction into your position here at QUT, how long you've been in your research space, and what your PhD was in? Uh, so I've been here for three or so years, although I'm losing count. I'm a lecturer, so I theoretically half the time teaching, half the time researching or thereabouts. Um, my PhD was on the question of uh, how the law should work out, whether somebody who's got anorexia should be found to lack capacity to make decisions about their treatment. Um, yes, that's it. Amazing. So would you just quickly say that your area mental health law research? Yes, although I do things broad, more broadly in health law, being with the health law people at QUT has led me down a few paths. And I teach in health law, but yeah, mental health law is, the, is my main thing. Excellent. Sam, we have some rapid fire questions for you. Uh, the first one is, what are your pronouns? Uh, he, him. What is your highlight of the year? This year, I started a reading group in ACLA and it's been so cool because each time there's been people who've come and we've had this really excellent kind of philosophical discussion and it makes me feel like this is what I came to university for and it's made me feel very happy. That's an excellent highlight. <laughs> What's your coffee order? Long black. And if you were at karaoke what would you sing? Uh, well it's not living on a prayer because that used to be my uh, one. But then I heard a recording of myself <laughs> singing it and I realised that I actually couldn't hit the high notes. But I found out that John Bon Jovi can't hit those notes now anyway. But, so therefore, what I'm going to move on to is Like a Prayer by Madonna because it always works on the dance floor. People know it. And so it's going to be a hard nice choice going forward. That is excellent. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, <laughs> all right, let's move on to the more substantive part of this podcast. Um, what is your research problem and topic um, topic of interest? We know you wrote a peer-reviewed article in the Medical Law Review that was published. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about this and why we're here today? Yeah, so the article was about the Queensland Mental Health Review Tribunal. Now, that's something that is part of what I would just say is mental health law. Every country that I know of has some sort of law which says if you're a person with a mental illness and you're seen to be a danger to yourself or to others, there is a law which allows doctors to treat you even if you don't consent to it. It's a really big deal for the person who's given the treatment, obviously. Now, 
back in the day, say 100 years ago, a single doctor could decide that someone had a mental illness and therefore needed to be treated against their will. And that person could have basically all of their rights taken away at the decision of one doctor. And we've moved on a lot, a lot from that. Um, now, in most countries that I know of, there are checks and balances. And in Queensland and in all states of Australia, uh, a doctor does make an original order that somebody should be treated against their will because of, of a mental illness. Uh, but a second doctor has to confirm that that's necessary. And then within one month of an order, the tribunal has to check that order and decide whether it's legitimate and whether it should keep going. So that's what the Queensland Mental Health Review Tribunal does. It's a really, really big deal because it helps decide whether somebody can have this treatment against their will or and or be detained against their will. So I'm a lawyer and I'm sort of interested in rights and that sort of thing. And so that whole issue from my perspective is, is really serious. Like this decision is, is massive about whether that's allowed or not. If it happened to me, I'd be really upset about it. Mm. So I'm interested in how the tribunal makes those decisions. And me and my, my PhD supervisor both had connections in the um, community legal space. And we both were contacted uh, individually by lawyers who work in that area. And they had big concerns about how the tribunal was making their decisions. Um, they said that, that the procedures followed weren't fair, that there were problems with the evidence that was used. They said that the tribunal just really acts as a, a rubber stamp for the, for the doctor's opinions. So that was the impetus for our study. That's, that's what we looked at. Um, so we interviewed a whole bunch of lawyers and advocates and um, reviewed what they said and then analysed what they said in relation to the, the law that applies and and we decided that there was there was a bunch of problems. Would you be able to tell us what some of those problems were that you discovered through this research? Um, so a big thing from a legal perspective is that uh, there are rules called pr procedural fairness. Um, and any time that you're deciding on someone's rights and interests, uh, the common law of Australia says that you have to do that with procedural fairness. And there were things that came up that didn't seem like they were uh, met those obligations of procedural fairness. So really a big one was the one I mentioned before, that the rubber stamp, that uh, doctors would present evidence about why someone needed to have this involuntary treatment. Can we just pause there for a second? Sure. Can you just give us an example of a specific mental illness that we're talking about, like the severity it needs to be in order for this order to be made? Um, so, um, so uh, for example, a mental illness that is commonly um, appearing at the tribunal would be schizophrenia. But there is... Um, the, the definition of mental illness in the Act um, isn't very prescriptive. So anorexia would qualify, bipolar disorder. So lots of different um, uh, individually named disorders. Um, the really what is required according to the law is that as a result of that disorder, the person is a danger to themselves or others. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the danger doesn't have to be life-threatening. It could just be a danger of um, having the health condition worsen. So it is a fairly, in some ways, it's a fairly easy to meet criterion. So, um, so uh, thank you. Um, the other things that the lawyers thought were problems were that, and this is related to the rubber stamping thing, is that the treating team would present evidence about why this order was necessary. But the lawyers for the client, the client themselves, didn't really have a proper chance to challenge the evidence. There was evidence presented that us lawyers would say is hearsay evidence. That is, um, it's somebody saying what somebody else did or said. Um, in a normal court, you're not allowed to present that as evidence. But in this in this tribunal, they were, and lawyers thought that that was a problem. Um, they also thought that some treatments like electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, were approved too often. That again, it was a rubber stamp, but this was a really serious treatment that required really careful analysis to decide whether it was appropriate. But again, the tribunal would say, yep, if the doctors think that it's okay, then we're going to say yes. The last thing, and this is a big one, um, the clients or patients of the tribunal often really wanted to talk about how the involuntary treatment that they were getting affected them. So if people are getting um, uh, medicine to treat uh, schizophrenia, the drugs that are used may work against the schizophrenia, but often have really serious side effects affecting everything. So appetite, sexual function, sense of self, almost anything that you can think of uh, can be a side effect of treatment for mental illness. And for the people at the tribunal, this was something that they really, really wanted to talk about, but the tribunal tended to say, no, we're not here to talk about your individual treatment. We're just here to talk about whether you're allowed to have this involuntary treatment or not. And that made the, that made the clients you know, confused and very disappointed because that's what they really wanted to talk about. So that from a legal perspective, if what all of the people we interviewed said was true, this is, this is, this is really a problem. Um, yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. And Sam, it's hard, I guess, as a, as a person who's not an expert in this area to understand why the tribunal might say, we're not interested in your individual treatment when it sounds like that's exactly what they should be interested in. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about the reasoning behind that and why, why the tribunal said that? So they have this, the tribunal has this really weighty thing to decide. It's will we continue the order or not? And so the mental health law I was talking about at the start what it's the, the orders that are made in Queensland, they're now called treatment authorities. And a treatment authority is something that allows doctors to treat someone with mental illness against their will. And the tribunal's main job, according to the legislation, is to decide whether the treatment authority should continue or not. If it is accepted and if it is approved, then it is primarily up to 
the doctors to decide, okay, what specific, uh, what specific medicine should be prescribed, what specific treatment should be prescribed. So it's understandable why the tribunal would say, oh, well, we don't want to get into that. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there is history in the treatment of mental illness of some doctors, some of the time, not taking those side effects properly into consideration. And the tribunal seemed to us presents this opportunity for the, for the clients to say, hey, this, this, is how, this is how this treatment is being experienced by me and it's horrible. Um, but the tribunal, uh, understandably, as I said, said we, we can't get into that. One of the things and one of the potential other explanations why they don't get into it um, as much as we think that they could and should is that the Queensland Tribunal only allocates half an hour for the uh, hearings to happen. And really, a lot, a lot of the doctors think, and it seems to us, that half an hour really isn't enough. Um, and so uh, without perhaps more time being allocated to the hearings, these sorts of more you know, th these things which would require a fair bit of discussion don't get a chance to be aired. There, had, there were some circumstances our participants said that where, where the tribunal did um, have or allow a discussion about the particular treatment. One of the members of the tribunal is a psychiatrist. So there is the expertise there to have that sort of discussion, but it was rare and we think it it should be able to happen more. So just to put that into perspective, the amount of time taken to decide whether or not someone's autonomy is pretty much completely restricted in their self-identity change, the amount of time it takes me to, to have my lunch break. Yeah. That is, that is so insufficient. It, do, it does seem like it off the bat. Um, when uh, I was interviewed by an ABC journalist about this paper that we published and he really uh, latched onto that and said, oh, 30 minutes. And that was one of the headlines used in his uh, piece about it. And it, it is a big deal. Um, of course, that's not in the legislation anywhere that says hearings can only be 30 minutes. They, they could be longer, but of course it is dictated to by budget. Uh, the tribunal has a budget it's funded by the Queensland government. They are required to operate within their budgets. And so for there to be more time allocated for these hearings, presumably the budget for the tribunal would have to be increased. Now that then becomes a political issue. And I don't think that this is something that weighs heavily on the Queensland government. It's not something that gets discussed much. It's not something that's widely known about. People do know, I think, about uh, mental health law, that it is possible for people to be treated against their will. Most people wouldn't know, though, about the mental health tribunal. So it's not a big political issue in Queensland, I don't think. Sorry, can I just ask, um, I know, um, Sinead, you probably want to ask the third question, but I guess one thing I'm interested in, Sam, is you talked about two problems being the time and also the fact that it's essentially a rubber stamp. So I'm wondering, even if the time is maybe extended, do you think there's still a risk that it would still just be a rubber stamp, but in a longer period of time? Absolutely. 
Um, one of the things is that uh, there, there is almost an inherent imbalance that's always going to be present in these sorts of tribunals, where on one hand, you have somebody who most likely does have a mental illness. And so we'll have some difficulty in representing their wishes. We'll have some difficulty in, in ordering their thoughts and putting their best arguments forward. Hopefully they can be assisted by a lawyer and in Queensland now they are assisted by a lawyer and that does, I think, make a difference. But on the other hand, you do have a treating team who has the authority of their professional positions as psychiatrists normally. And the tribunal which has to decide, well, are we going to allow this person just to go out without any uh, treatment and thus perhaps cause a risk to themselves or the community? Or are we going to play it safe and follow what the psychiatrists are saying are necessary? Um, and it's important to note in relation to your question that research from around the world says that this issue of a mental health tribunal being seen as a rubber stamp has been seen all over the world, New Zealand, the UK, Scandinavia, North America. So yes, having extra time for the tribunal, uh, certainly I'm not saying would be a, uh, a, a total solution to the issue that we've identified. This ties really well into the third question, which is what are some of the solutions from a government or policy or legal perspective? And as we've just talked about the fact that just because you extend the time doesn't mean it actually is going to change any of the quality of the outcome. So what about like a five minutes of that 30 minutes is mandatorily given to the patient to express how that treatment is affecting them, how it's affecting them socially and their self-identity, because there is a massive power imbalance between the treating team who have empirical evidence on their side. They have a, like, you know, objectivity essentially, and you know, a wealth of, of proof of what can happen if um, someone is a risk to society versus the subjectivity of one individual patient. So what if there was that option that even if it, they stayed at 30 minutes, that five or seven minutes even had to be certain questions directed at the patient, just expressing how it's affecting them to, so that they feel heard? Well, that sounds like a great idea. I would say that uh, I, I really don't know um, the ways in which this tribunal experience could be improved, not in a way that I'm confident enough to say, this is what should happen. I am confident to say that more resources could be given to these tribunals um, to allow more time if it was necessary and to allow the client space to you know, discuss their particular uh, experiences of the treatment. And, and perhaps having some time lent over to that was always dedicated to that would be a help, it seems like it to me. Um, but in, when I'm thinking about this, I, I wanna mention uh, research that I haven't done yet, but is, is, is being planned and discussed. So I have a colleague in Canada who is a mental health nurse and for her PhD, she uh, looked at not the views of lawyers, but the views of almost everybody else 
in relation to the equivalent sort of things that were going on in Ontario and Canada. And she discovered through her own work and through her research, things which I think are really telling and really means that people like me, the, from the legal perspective, need to sit up and take notice. She talked about how for her, for her clients who had matters before the Ontario Tribunal, that the whole process was very troubling, that they, for these people, the hearing was a really big deal. It was deciding on their rights and they would get dressed up to go to do it. And for some of them, it was like the most sort of formal thing that they'd done or experienced in their lives. And then when they got to the tribunal, it was embarrassing because the treating team, because they needed to justify having the order continue, talked about all the worst things that they'd ever done. And uh, the, the, the embarrassing things or the dysregulated things or the dangerous things. So everything that was from their past got presented to this court. Um, and, and then they lost the case or so it seemed to them because they wanted to get off the uh, order and, and they didn't because in Ontario, like in, in Queensland, the vast majority of the time, the orders are confirmed. So it, it was embarrassing and destabilizing because the tribunal seemed to hold out the hope that they would uh, have a different outcome um, from what their current situation was, but, but it never happened. So they would get dressed up go to this hearing and have embarrassing things talked about them. And then they would come back and, and feel destabilized by it. Also, that it would mean that the relationships that they had with the treating team were, were damaged. Now, if you're an involuntary treatment order, your treating team who is managing your treatment and having a big control over your life your relationship with those nurses and doctors is very, very important. And this uh, tribunal experience for those people that my colleague witnessed uh, was damaging to those relationships. So they had to come and have this uh, hearing where the uh, bad things were aired. It really put their relationship on a different level, but then they had to go back and go back to the living arrangements and the medical arrangements that were there before where this, these ongoing relationships are really problematic. So it seems from the legal, let's say rights perspective, that sort of thing like the embarrassment uh, is something that we're kind of blind to. So the negative effects of having this tribunal hearing where somebody's rights are defended as strongly as possible it can have unintended consequences. Um, so what we are going to do, what our aim is in our future research together is, is to try, is, is to explore ways in which um, the processes could be improved that take account of the two different things. On one hand, you've got the rights of the patient who does have a, serious outcomes from these hearings where all of their important rights are, are taken away. On the other hand, we want the hearings not to become more damaging to the person 
Um, and I think it, I, I think that to move forward, we need to be able to balance the legal perspective and the medical and other perspectives. And that's, that's what I hope to do. Mm. Sam, that sounds like such important research and it's pretty devastating to hear those stories about people idea. feeling like that. Yeah, I, I had no idea either. And I guess from a legal background, it is sort of a, quite an adversarial type system, isn't it? But a lot of people um, would not benefit from that. So I think that sounds like a really interesting area of future research. I think one, one further question that we have, Sam, is what can the ordinary person do or what do they need to know in this area of law? Okay, so at the general level, um, I've had conversations with people, you know, smart lawyer types who I've talked about how bad things can be for people who are under mental health orders. And they've said, yeah, it's bad, but they need it. So, it, you know, it, it has to happen. What I want people to think about is that it might be true, and I think that it is true in my personal opinion, that some people have mental illnesses which uh, affect their thinking to the, uh, to the extent in such a negative way that even though it's not a nice thing to have to do, that it is appropriate in some cases to, to step in and say, I know you don't want this treatment, but for your own good, we are going to give it. I think that in limited circumstances, that's ethically acceptable. But just because you accept that in some circumstances it is, I think that doesn't mean you should just put, put away your thinking when you're, when you're talking about somebody with a mental illness. That it doesn't mean that it's right for everybody all of the time. And you do have to constantly remember what a massive imposition it is. And just to imagine what it would be like to be forcibly treated against your will it would be awful. So we really have to constantly bear that in mind. Um, from uh, maybe a personal perspective, if, if you know somebody who is under an order and does go to a mental health tribunal, um, from my conversations with my colleague, what I would suggest that you could do to help in that situation as well as perhaps helping them to, to find legal representation, that, that would be good. But also to remember that, that personal effect that the tribunal hearings can have, the embarrassment and the destabilisement and the bad effects that it could have on their relationships with their treating team. So bear that in mind as well, that, um, that, that these people who've had the hearing really might need the support just to build back their self-esteem um, to help deal with the embarrassment and, and perhaps if you can help them to, to, to make sure that the relationships with the health providers, even though it's a really difficult relationship, to try to make sure that's as good as it can be because that's a really important thing in the lives of, of the people who are under the orders. Wow, I just, I came into this thinking like, oh, I know what a mental health tribunal is. I understand what happens. I was just totally proven 100% wrong. And it's, it's awful just to, just to hear that. I feel so, I feel such a strong sense of injustice about this situation. You know, it makes me so angry that an individual person can just be treated so poorly. 
you know, for the doctor, it's just one patient in their list of 100, but for this patient, it's their entire life. And yeah, I just really appreciate that you're working in this space to make this better for these people. So thank you, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> that wraps up our second episode. Thank you again very much, Sam, for joining us today and for your expertise. Um, have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you.